Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Bali. I'm Carolyn April, and as always, looking for my good friend, Seth Robinson. Seth. Hey, what's up? Oh, I'm at Ground Zero, New Hampshire primary week, you know, so um, lots of uh, presidential candidates, basically within miles of my home all day, all the time. So this is a fun season for us. It's one of the, you know, one of the things that New Hampshire gets to gets to claim. And uh, it's actually pretty cool um, because we get to see and hear and, and shake hands and talk to the candidates, which is something that a lot of states don't get, to, most states don't get to do. So it's very fun. It's just so, it's a sort of a party environment here in New Hampshire this week. Yeah, you and I were talking about that yesterday and I was saying how uh, I'm very happy for you uh, to be excited about it, but I, I am uh, not so interested in that. Uh, <laughs> And so I, you know, if I were, if I were living in New Hampshire, I'd probably be like the the hermit neighbor. Everyone would wonder what was wrong with me. Yes, they would actually. <laughs> um, but uh, well, we're hoping that on the heels of Iowa's debacle this week, with its caucus, which is another, which is a format I just cannot understand, um, we will be able to shine and and pull things off uh, expertly next Tuesday when we vote. Well, best of luck to you. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to talk about Iowa a little bit today. We actually uh, were scheduled to talk a little bit about software in general. And since software is a topic that we don't focus on a ton here at CompTIA, we wanted to bring in someone that knows much more than us about what they're talking about. So we are very pleased to welcome Sarah May. She is a software architect and the director of design system enablement at Salesforce. And previously, she has founded RailsBridge, which is a community for uh, Ruby on Rails developers and working to get more women in software development. And she's a former board member of Ruby Central. Sarah, did I get that all right? You sure did. Nice to be here. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to have you. So, Sarah, like I said, we, you know, want to talk about Iowa just a little bit because for everything that went on, the focus seemed to be on software. And I know when I was looking at Twitter this week, a lot of software development type people were kind of generally making the point, yeah, software is hard, which, which I think is something that not everyone realizes with consumer mobile applications and everything, but software is a really complicated business, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I've been doing software since the late 90s. And it's, it really hasn't gotten easier. I remember back in the late 90s, everyone was saying, oh, yeah, it's going to get any day now. We're not going to need software engineers anymore because we're just going to be able to, you know, drag and drop a little uh, flowchart and it's going to create a program for us. But, you know, it really hasn't gotten that much easier, to be honest. Technologies change, new frameworks, new languages come up. There's a new language every week, it feels like. Um, but we, we haven't found whatever silver bullet might live out there for, uh, for making software easier. It's interesting because I'm um, and I'm I'm going back to Iowa a little bit here, but the 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 company that developed the application for this voting collection in Iowa, they claim that the app worked, but it was the transmission that was a problem. And um, are those two separate from one another? And if so, who would be writing the code for the transmission? Not that I'm asking you to know that exactly, but <laughs> wouldn't it be the person that wrote the app too? Well, as you're writing a mobile app, certainly you need to understand where your information is being stored and where you're sending it to and whether or not that backend, as it's generally called, is, is capable of handling the amount of volume that you need to throw at it. And I don't know the specifics of this particular project, um, but 
I think that that's generally part of what mobile developers work on is, is thinking about, okay, here's my app. I need to build the app itself. And that's definitely is like a discrete thing to do. Mm -hmm. But then part of testing the app is not just testing the app itself in a simulator or, you know, even on your phone, but it's testing the app being used at the volume you expect it to be used at. And, you know, individual phones wouldn't overload necessarily in a situation where lots of people are using the app, but the back end you're using might overload. And that's just part of what you need to think about when you're testing an app. Yeah, it's a very complicated space. And, and we've talked a little bit uh, here that one of the things that's complicating technology in general is the interaction now with physical life where, you know, as, as technology is getting broader and broader, it's moving out of back office type things and out of enterprise type things into everyday life. And I, I think we have certain expectations of everyday life that when you bring software or any other technology into it, uh, you really have to start thinking about corner cases. And uh, there has to be a lot of thought that goes into the entire process and a lot of testing to try to make sure that you get it right. Obviously, there's going to be things that, that fall through the cracks here. And I think this kind of leads into the, the main discussion that we were planning to have, Sarah, which is around the way that software developers are getting trained these days and where they're coming from and the fact that there are now these code schools and boot camps that are trying to supply software developers in addition to the four-year degree programs in computer science that we may have had in the past. So, so the, the landscape is, is changing quite a bit because of the, the massive demand around software and, and driving things with technology, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when I got into software you know, 20 plus years ago, there really was only two ways to get into software. It was either you went to a university and you got a, a four-year computer science or computer engineering degree, or you sort of self-taught. And, and a lot of that was just either from books or as we moved into the 2000s, it was more common to sort of self-teach with online resources or by getting into the open source community. But the vast majority of software engineers were people with four-year technical degrees um, for a very, very long time. Up until even, you know, when in 2009, um, when I first started RailsBridge, which was one of the first kind of get more women into coding kind of nonprofits, we would hold these weekend workshops and we'd have 50 women who would come in and they would be like, wow, this is really cool. How can I learn more? And I'd be like, well, there's books and there's online things, but there's really nowhere for me to send them in terms of like school or classes or anything like that, unless they wanted to go back and get like a four-year degree in computer science. And all of that has changed in a very short amount of time. So it's really interesting. I think, you know, the first uh, coding bootcamp, dev bootcamp was what it was called, graduated their first cohort of students in 2012. And so here we are, you know, we're eight years later. And one estimate says that there are some 40,000 bootcamp grads out there, uh, which is a lot of people. That's amazing. You know, Sarah, for, for, for my edification, I think the term boot camp gets tossed out there a lot about all kinds of things from exercise to software development and uh, a particular focus on women and girls. Can you walk us through what a typical boot camp actually is in the software development realm? Yeah, absolutely. There's, as I said, the one called Dev Boot Camp was the first one. And I think that's why uh, the word boot camp got attached to these particular <laughs> schools. I think they like to call themselves code schools rather than boot camps, I think. Um, so there's a lot of, of examples of ones out there. For example, there's General Assembly, there's App Academy. There's a lot of different ones. And basically, these are generally six-week to maybe six-month programs 
depending on the on the particular school that are intensive software development education and so it's a generally these are full-time programs um, but instead of being a four-year commitment it's a six-week to six-month commitment but you can walk in blind having never done anything before some of them yeah for sure there's a lot of different business models for these schools uh, and I feel like we're still in the in the process of shaking out some of the maybe uh, shakier business models, if you will. Some of them would guarantee a job after graduation, for example, but a lot of time those types of code schools are very selective about who they admit. So they will admit people that they are very sure will complete the yeah. program mm -hmm. and be able to get a job. So for example, uh, I've met many people who did a computer science degree and then actually went and did a boot camp afterwards or a code school rather afterwards in order to get you know, they felt like they got the theory and the basic foundations in the computer science program, but then they felt like what the code school gives you is more modern techniques, modern frameworks, really a sense of how software is actually built in the industry today, which is something you generally don't get from a computer science program. So they are different in a number of ways, both in the length of time, the commitment that you make to them, but then also in what they teach. Computer science, academic computer science programs do tend to still be very focused on theory and on, you know, they may teach one or two classes in, the, in a popular modern language, but most of the time you're learning Java, or you're learning C, you're mm. learning something fairly, uh, what I would consider to be old fashioned. Um, not something that you would find in your typical exciting startup, for example. But a lot of these uh, code schools teach things like Ruby on Rails, they teach JavaScript, they teach Node. They teach uh, React, they teach very uh, modern and heavily used uh, frameworks that you find in a lot of companies today. So what would you say from your perspective with, with the amount of history that we have with some of these cohorts graduating now, what do, what do you see as, as the pros and cons of these code schools compared to a traditional four-year degree or any other kind of self-training out there or, or whatever other path there might be to getting into software development? I think, I think they are very, they're different types of people. I actually have worked several projects where I would work with new grads from computer science programs and with folks from code schools. And it's a really interesting difference. So oftentimes new computer science grads are very well versed in the theory. They're very well versed in, they've done four years of actual programming. So they've had a lot of experience just debugging things and kind of um, figuring out how to get stuff to work, for example, just like more code experience. But oftentimes the folks coming from code schools are career changers. And so they may have amazing communication skills. Mm -hmm. um, they may know a lot about the business um, that you're building an app for. Whereas folks that come out of computer science degrees, uh, because computer science curriculum doesn't emphasize communication, either in writing or, or verbally, um, they tend to need to develop those communication skills in order to be successful in a, in, a, in a sort of corporate environment. Whereas a lot of the career changer folks, they may not have the coding experience that folks from a computer science program do, and they may not have the theory, but I find that that kind of stuff is actually much more teachable in some ways than communication skills are. They're much more concrete. You can go to the Wikipedia page for a particular algorithm that maybe you didn't learn about in your code school, um, but is part of a standard computer science curriculum. And you can read all about it and understand it and try it out. And there's lots of resources. Communication skills being something that is more personal and difficult to teach 
actually is harder to teach people. And so it's, it's interesting. Each, each group tends to have things that they're good at and, and things that they need to develop, and they tend to be quite different. It sounds like a good idea to have a mix of these two groups within one organization um, because yeah. there's a synergy here. So the, you know, the, the soft skills people who might have a lacking in some coding area that they, that they don't know about, they will sort of have some sort of you know, uh, effect on the strict computer science coders who you know, are well-versed in, in the hard skill that they do, but may lack the ability to, or not the ability, but they lack the skills currently to do those sort of business necessities uh, those intercommunications necessities that we all need to be successful in, in a business environment. Yeah, absolutely. They both have things to teach each other. And as long as you've got a manager that can kind of keep that at the forefront and not have it be, you know, a class divide between the computer science people and the code school people, as long as you have a manager who can, who can keep that environment healthy so that everyone can learn from each other, it's a really, it's a really great combination. Seth, you know from a lot of the studies you've been doing and that I've been doing that the wall between you know what skills are needed and one of our trends in our outlook this year was about skills is it, it's no longer simply just technical skills but those soft skills are really important for the technical people to have and, and there's almost just a complete breakdown of the wall between this and that when it comes to being successful in the workplace. Right, right. And and when we talk about soft skills or employability skills, I feel like there's a, a conversation that's beginning to happen uh, that goes beyond the typical set of those skills that we might talk about, like communication or teamwork or problem solving. And we're getting into ethics or societal ramifications, kind of like we were talking about before. You know, how is this thing going to get used out there? What are some of the considerations that you should have? And I'm wondering, Sarah, if you see maybe not even just in, in the code schools, because my, my knee-jerk reaction is if the code schools are very focused on the technical stuff, they may be missing some of that uh, peripheral knowledge that's needed to, to really integrate technology into a solution. But I'm not even sure that the, the full programs have that. You, you might pick it up through osmosis as you're kind of around other people and having discussions but that might be a, a, a gap in the more formal, well-established programs as well. Yes, it definitely is. I think that most, most computer science programs these days have some kind of ethics class, but it tends to be something that's not focused on really. And it's kind of added as a, my, my impression of it from talking to folks who, are, who have done computer science degrees more recently than me, <laughs> is that students don't really take it seriously because it's not a, it's not a technical class. It's so they sort of look like it, look at it the same way they look at, you know, oh, I have to take two semesters of writing in order to graduate, right? Or um, I need to take this one, you know, cultural uh, advancement class in order to graduate. And I have to take this computer ethics class in order to graduate, right? So uh, my impression is that it's not really a focus of these programs and uh, that they still both in the code school world because they're so compressed and in the computer science um, programs because they do come from a lot of them have a history of being math departments originally and then being like sort of a section of a math department and then kind of separating into their own thing. And so they come from a, a very um, hard science point of view and they tend to look down on some of these or, or consider them less important some of these other skills. Hmm. I think that will change as time goes on. Let's hope. I, it is changing. I think it's, it's 
kind of slower than I imagined. And because I, this is something that I found even when I was in my program in the late nineties and that I talked with my professors about, and, you know, they were just like, well, we don't have time to, to put more non-technical classes in the curriculum because, well, we have to do databases and we have to do operating systems and we have to do this and we have to do that and like all of these technical topics. And if we put in more, you know, for example, ethics classes, then we have to take out one of these other classes and like, which one should we take, you know? And, and because of the tenure system, especially, I think that it's slow to change, uh, but it is changing a little bit, which is hopeful. And, and as with all education, uh, it will be driven largely by employers, right? You know, if, if employers are asking these questions, then schools or code schools or, or any kind of educational institution will want to make sure that their students are prepared to answer those questions, right? Yeah, that's a good point. It could be just that companies aren't asking for it yet. <laughs> or, you know, maybe they are, but, uh, or maybe they're not. Like, it does feel, you know, a lot of the stuff that, of the things that were the, the debates we're having these days in software have to do with ethics. Like for example, the um, the code that Uber wrote for their self-driving car that uh, would look at a an obstacle in front of it, and if it wasn't in a crosswalk, would assume that it was not a person and would just keep going. And so, therefore, they ran over a person. Lovely, um, <laughs> right? And so that's that's a that's a coding problem, right? Like that is a software that was a bug in their system that uh, they introduced with their software. And so there was a woman jaywalking and the car just hit them going 40 miles an hour because the car saw them, but assumed that they weren't important because they weren't in a crosswalk. And, you know, the, there's other examples of this, like the, the Volkswagen emissions scandal, where they had a test mode that they would put the car into uh, where it would report different results than what it was actually outputting. Or it would output, it would change it so that it would output like different types of emissions. And uh, they just kind of left that in there. <laughs> and, you know, the question is, who is supposed to have caught that, right? What level, at what level was the question should have been asked and wasn't? Is it, is it really the person, you know, the new computer science grad who was doing this and was like, okay, we did a test mode. My boss told me we need a test mode. I'm putting in a test mode. Was it the manager that asked them to do it? Was it the product manager that asked for this feature? Was it the tester who noticed it was still on or didn't notice it was still on? The question of, of who's responsible for this, it's very difficult to pin it to like a single individual. I think it gets even more difficult now in the era of emerging tech and artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of that. I'm curious about your opinions on how those developments and those technologies and you know, uh, automation and robots taking over the world is gonna change software development. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think the way I think about a lot of machine learning is that it's sort of like the coding process, except it just goes a lot faster. So let me give you an example, right? So when you're writing code, you're, you, know, you write a little program and then you run it with some inputs to see what it does, right? You give it some information and then you look at the outputs of the program and then you adjust the program based on what you see from the output. So maybe the first time you run it, it gives you something you totally don't expect. And you're like, okay, that obviously this isn't working. So then you figure out where the problem is, you fix it, you run it again. You're like, okay, this time it's giving me something more like what I expect. Okay, good. Because what machine learning does is it often just does that loop, but a lot faster, right? So it gets some input and it compares it to the data it has and it gives you some output 
and then it looks at, okay, what was the reaction to that output? And now I will change the algorithm that is looking at the data to figure out, you know, as it goes on, each piece of data it gets in, it changes a little bit. And we, as a software engineering discipline, we haven't quite figured out what to do with that yet in terms of, well, if the computer kind of wrote the code itself, like then whose problem is it, right? Exactly what you're saying. Like then it's <laughs> yeah. even more fuzzy about whose problem is it that the code ended up this way and who should have stopped it or who should have been quality controlling it and how could they even do that? Yeah, I think that, that that's sort of a scary thing. Um, and, and, and I, you know, it's not my domain, but eventually we're all going to be um, affected by it. And so it seems to me that it's kind of an inflection point for the software developer industry, if you will, and those of you who work in it. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I would like to see come out of this, um, and to be honest, I haven't heard of this yet, but, but I, this is what I hope for, is that I would love for us to have an organization that has strong ethical standards for software development that you sign up for when you sign up for this organization. And that will back you if you refuse to do things that are unethical when you are on the job. And there are various professional organizations, as you obviously know, in the in software engineering industry, there's like the Association for Computing Machinery, the ACM, there's the IEEE. And all of these have ethics, like uh, codes of ethics that they've written, but none of them really have any teeth, right? Like, so if you go to your boss and you say, I think that we shouldn't do this because I think there's a chance it could do X, Y, and Z. And they say, well, do it anyway. What do you do? There's no place you can go to be like, you know, like... So for example, if you are a structural engineer or a, a medical doctor and someone asks you to do something unethical, there are organizations you can go to and say, look, the hospital I work at telling me to do X and it's medically unethical and I'm not going to do it. And they'll be like, okay, <laughs> right. like we will back you on that. And so I would love to see an organization like that where we say, okay, if your employer is asking you to do something unethical, uh, we will, we'll, we'll, A, we will negotiate with them about that thing for you. We will potentially, you know, cover your salary if you get fired for doing something unethical while you look for another job. We will, um, you know, maybe even work with employers to figure out how to be like, you know, certified as an ethical employer to work for, for example, you know, things like that. Basically, we need a, a way for individual software engineers to be able to say, look, I'm not going to do this because, there's this myth that we're all just completely, you know, we're all rich and we could just afford to like quit our job anytime that someone asks us to do something unethical. And some people can do that, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, others of us have families and other obligations that we have that, that really make it so that we can't just quit a job that's asking us to do something unethical, right? And so I think that really it's going to take something like that where we can have an organization that we can join and be like, okay, look, you know, I'm signing up to do ethical software development and here's the code of ethics that I'm following. And I think there's a lot of companies that would respond positively to that. Uh, I think there's also obviously a lot of companies that are going to respond negatively to that as well. It's sort of like a good housekeeping seal of approval for a particular company to work for. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's also, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have talked about this in the, in the context of unionizing which I think is a word that a lot of software engineers initially then look at and so and say, look, no, I'm not a, I'm not a pipe fitter. I'm not a, I'm not a longshoreman. I don't need a union, right? But a union is, is, is often for other things besides group negotiating. 
I think one of the most useful things that a union could do for us is provide this ethical cover, if you will, uh, and give us the the ability to exercise this professionalism that we want to exercise. I think a lot of these people that are in these situations, they want to do the right thing, but we're not giving them the tools and the resources to do the right thing. So I think we need a third party organization to pick up that slack. Hmm. Well, there are uh, certainly a lot of issues here. Uh, we, you know, we started off talking about election issues and, and moved into, you know, how people are becoming software developers and, you know, we've ended up with a kind of a large call to action or, or question about, you know, how can we find an organization that, uh, that will help businesses and, and software developers get to the place that I, I think a lot of people want, want to be at. So uh, there's definitely a lot here. And I think this has been a fascinating conversation, Sarah. I really appreciate you joining us for this. And, uh, and I'd, I'd love to stay in touch as, as we think about these issues a little bit more uh, because, you know, these, a lot of these issues are at the heart of, of what we're doing. And I know we've got our latest issue of CompTIA World coming out in about a month, and that's going to focus on some of these election issues. And a lot of these workforce issues are really top of mind for us as well. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Yeah, It's been a great conversation. Yeah. I've learned a lot. I, I don't know too much about software development or some of the issues that you brought up about being a software engineer and some of the things that you go through. So I, I appreciate it. Uh, always good for me to, to pick up some good knowledge from somebody else. And uh, thank you for joining. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, well, I think that'll be a wrap for us then. And Sarah, thanks again. And Carolyn, I'll talk to you later. You will. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.